Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio on Melbourne's own free Triple R FM. I am Rob Jan and uh, our co-host Megan McHugh is leading a landing party this week. So, you just heard a track there, 30th Century Man, which is from the Life Aquatic original motion picture soundtrack. Scott Walker there spinning out that particular tune and... Played that because we're going to be looking at Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City, today on the show, as well as dropping in on a final Melbourne International Film Festival pick, which I've been watching on the weekend. Now we've moved on from the festival in the flesh, as it were, from the urban cinemas, but there's still a regional program running, and of course the online streaming component too, which kicks up as well. So still relevant, and of course it will inform a lot of our genre looks for the rest of the year too, as they come out on maybe disc, although that's a a thing now, DVDs not necessarily being released in Australia. As you probably know, Disney pulling out of the market here, amongst others. And, uh, yeah, our title today is You Can't Wake Up If You Don't Fall Asleep, which is something to ponder about. And speaking of pondering, our podcast title is Hello Modder, Hello Potter, Here I Am at Camp Eureka. I'm getting my genre metaphors mixed there, but that's all right. And if you're wondering, we are a little bit behind with the podcast at the moment, but you can still listen to the show live or as live as we get here on Zero G. Or indeed, go to rrr.org.au at any time and check out the on-demand feed. And the special feature, of course, of the on-demand feed is that it includes all the musical tracks. Hallelujah, you say. Huzzah! (laughs) Okay, maybe not in the case of Zero G's Terpsichorean selection. All right, now... Oh my gosh, those last bracket of episodes for season two of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. A crossover with some of the crew made flesh from the USS Cerritos in the animated series Lower Decks. What a concept that was. I know, we've seen this sort of stunt episode where they've done animated treatises upon characters. In this case, they actually brought live action actors in who had played the voices from the animated series characters. I was so good. Season two, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, it has got so much of a focus upon really fine, elemental, iconic and seminal Star Trek that it's blowing people's minds. Even Star Trek fans after oh, decades of Star Trek and hundreds of episodes and movies and so on, it's just... An amazing thing that this has all come together now. They had a, a War with the Klingons episode focusing upon Christine Chapel and Dr. Mbenga that played like an episode of MASH on steroids. So moving. And the best Star Trek musical. 
<laughs> they actually did a musical on Star Trek. I mean, this was up there with Once More with Feeling from Buffy and the Xena Warrior Princess musicals and, you know, that that uh, paragon of musical comedy, Schmigadoon. <laughs> just cannot encompass how great that was right down to all of the crew getting their spots. And, and it's kind of like Buffy in a way because in that there were actors who excelled at doing musicals because, well, you know, they'd done that on stage. Uh, Anthony Stewart headed played uh, Frank N. Furter in Rocky Horror and so on, you know. But in this one they had the same kind of thing running, but they also had a Klingon boy band, which just has to be seen to be believed. <laughs> And then they had a, a two-parter, and I love the way that they switched off between like a, a ultra-heavy, serious episode to these uh, more light-hearted ones, pretty much in the way that they did in the original Star Trek. Uh, it's a, a two-parter dealing with um, the invasion of a colony world by the reptilian Gorn, which played out a bit like Aliens, you know, James Cameron movie, to very chilling effect. And they also introduced Mr. Scott too, their version of, of Scotty. It's just a wonderful thing, this Star Trek Strange New Worlds. You can see it on Paramount Plus. All the episodes are streaming there now. And, yeah, there will be a season three, obviously delayed by the writers and actors strike in the US. And you know what? We stand behind the unionists, and if we have to wait for our favourite shows to return, so what? You know, we're talking about people's livelihood here. And Zero G, of all people, knows one of the issues is uh, AIs writing scripts and replacing actors. And, you know, I mean, some of that, those are advanced sort of concepts along the way, but they're certainly there and out there in the community. And you just don't want to go there, not in the real world. Perhaps not even in the fictional world, you know, with the Frankensteinian trope that often plays when we start talking about artificial intelligences or AEs, as I call them. Wow, what a concept. But we are here today and we are talking about Asteroid City, which was made before the strikes. And this is the this year's American comedy drama film. Also a science fiction one as well. And it is, of course directed and produced by Mr. Wes Anderson, or Mr. Anderson, as they would call him in The the Matrix. Now, his body of work would drop right into Zero-G's cargo bay, just as is, on account of the imaginatively inventive, stylized whimsicality of it all. But, you know, there are some specific ones, and we've reviewed all of these on Zero-G over the years. Uh, the submersible adventure in a quest for an elusive near-mythical shark in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou in 2004, and the amanthropomized talking beasties in The Fantastic Mix, Mr. Fox in 2009, uh, ditto with the more recent 2018 Isle of Dogs, and, you know, the weird noir crime story, The French Dispatch in 21, which I think is probably the most recent one that we reviewed. But all of them have had some element of otherness or strangeness that we have plugged into here on Zero G. And this one, Asteroid City, is absolutely no mistake. And 
You know, it's funny. You can tell the Wes Anderson fans in the cinema, if the cinema is not too packed, which it wasn't when I went in there, they all sit dead centre. <laughs> so hardly anyone sits off to one side. In fact, if you put Anderson's camera in there, he could film us all being very symmetrical, just like his films. Okay, this is set... Uh, actually, this is a complicated setup, so bear with me. It's... um. A television adaptation of a theatrical play, which also has behind-the-scenes scenes of the production of the play, and those are kind of the uh, the drop-in bookends to the story, which is about a retro rocket 1950s. So it's set in a small desert ho- motel, whose claim to tourist fame is a small asteroid crater and fragment that gave the town its name. There's a government observatory, a railway stop, and the fact that atomic tests occur beyond the nearest painted rock formations is also of (laughs) passing interest to people. The US military funds an annual space cadet science fair there, which is what draws some of our cast of characters together. And wackily enough, it's not actually filmed in the US, it was filmed in Spain, which gives it that sort of harsh, unblinking light that fearsomely blue sky that sets the colour palette at least. Uh, you know, this has got everything in it, into, and every one too for that matter, all those things that you want to see in a Wes Anderson film that we've grown to know and love and possibly misunderstand as well at times. But, you know, let's have a track from it. Now, this is from Wes Anderson's long-term collaborator, Musically, that is, Alexandra Desplat. And it is the special seminar at the playwright's request. And this is one of the signature tracks in Asteroid City. And it's got all of the the same through line that all of the other tracks do. And you'll often notice that in an Anderson film. He'll have something that just runs through the entire film. It's almost like a sort of a weird Philip Glass Um, motif that constantly underlines the action and the dialogue and the many scene changes and everything. And there's a certain symmetry to the music too when you think about it. Ah, it's very meta. blows my mind. Here we go with special seminar at the playwright's request from Asteroid City.
And it doesn't get any higher in the education terms than being in zero G. Rob Jan here, and that track was from Asteroid City. It was called uh, Special Seminar at the Playwright's Request, by composed by Alexandra Alexandre Desplat. I like to call him Desplat because it's zero G, and that's what we do here. <laughs> it's, all right, so we're looking at Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's new comedy, drama, science fiction, play within a play, meta story. Now, turning to his ensemble cast in there, and I think he's actually outdone himself this time. I was reading through it on the screen thinking, it's got everybody in it, this one. So they're all lined up to be in a Wes Anderson film. Many of them have been there before, so not their first rodeo, but, you know. So we've got um, a vast intermixture in this one. You've got people who are going to the Asteroid City Motel in the desert for the space cadet stargazing kind of uh, competition, which is funded by the military, the US military. You've also got the staff for the observatory that's set up there, the military people, of course. Um, many people have just brought their kids in for this particular thing. These are the finalists there, so they've already been notified that they've won awards, so they're all there with their inventions, and it's everything from death rays to a projector that can put <laughs> images upon the surface of the moon. So, you know, there's a wide range of gadgetry involved there. I feel like I'm in Tomorrowland here. So, okay, you've got... Um, uh, Jason Schwartzman, so American actor, U.S. American that is, and musician, been in a lot of Anderson films, uh, Rushmore, Darjeeling Limited, Fantastic Mr. Fox, pretty much well, almost all of them. Uh, but he has also been in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Um, he played Gideon Graves in that, and The Spot. He voiced the character of The Spot in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and also Beyond the Spider-Verse. So, you know, been in a lot of these things. And I think one of the more pertinent things, if those weren't enough, he was also in um, the fourth season of Fargo. So, you know, there's a few nods there. His um, rock band is called Phantom Planet, and I really should have got a track from that. But I did not, so we'll sail on. Uh, he's a, an excellent character in this one. Um sort of playing opposite Scarlett Johansson. He, like many of the characters in an Anderson movie, has got a tragedy in his past, that is the character, um, and that's impinging upon how he deals with his family who he's brought to this isolated motel in the desert and also how he interacts with Scarlett Johansson, who is playing Midge Campbell, uh, who's an actress, and she's brought along her daughter, Diner, played by um, Mercedes Ford. And this is uh, actually, though, this is complicated here, and it is an Anderson thing because some of the characters, some of the actors are also playing the parts that they are playing in the play, but there are other characters who are playing some of those too. So it gets very complex in there. In fact, I actually wonder if this might not be. Anderson's most complex piece of whimsicality. So Johansson is is great in the role of a uh, not entirely um, distant role from, uh, say, Marilyn Monroe. She's sort of playing that like that kind of incredibly famous actress who's 
a bit bored with her life on stage and screen and is having difficulty being a mother and, you know, lots of problems there. She's got abuse in her background. So this all ties in with the fact that uh, the person who is playing opposite her has also got problems. And so, you know, it's not just about all of the tricks of the trade that Anderson deploys in his cinematography and in his set building and all those other things. There's also quite an intricate human interaction going on here. Tom Hanks plays the father-in-law of one of the children, uh, gets involved in the action for various reasons, um, <laughs> perhaps wishing that he actually was in that major Matt Mason film that he has been trying to get going for decades. But here he is in a science fiction film again. Um, we've just uh, recently seen him in that post-apocalypse uh, streaming movie, you know, the one that's set in the... Uh, the globally warmed world. And he does a good job here, as you'd expect, and a little bit bewildered at, at times, but that's exactly what the character calls for. We've got Jeffrey Wright playing the general, General Gibson, and we've seen him before in um, on stage a lot in Angels in America and the miniseries adaptation. He plays Jean-Michel. Basquiat in the Basquiat film, so opposite David Bowie in that one. Uh, Felix Leiter in the James Bond films, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace and No Time to Die. Uh, been in Boardwalk Empire, was BT Latia in the Hunger Games films. Uh, Isaac Dixon in the video game, The Last of Us Part 2. And of course he is the Watcher voice in the Marvel Studios animated series What If, as well as so many other genre-relevant re- roles. So it's nice to see him just parachuted hit in here, as it were, or helicoptered in. Uh, and he is the perfect example of a straight-laced modern major general in this story. Now, rolling over into Tilda Swinton's character, who's a chameleon of an actress, if ever there was one, um, <laughs> you're going to see her in so many different shows, playing a vampire or a a train concierge in um, Snowpiercer, so many different things that we've seen her before. I think I first saw her in uh, Orlando way back in the day. Um, she plays Dr. Hickenlooper, who's an astronomer in the observatory. Um, no, she's not playing a an alien samurai Scottish zombie killer in this one, but, you know, it could be close. <laughs> now, providing the narration for the story in Asteroid City is, and the television uh, show adaptation of the play that it's supposed to be, Brian Cranston appears, and uh, he's also the host of an anthology television series, so they, they blend that in there. And I almost didn't recognise him to start with, and he's really gone all out to give himself a, a very 1950s host television presenter voice. Uh, as great as usual. Um, Ed Norton plays the playwright Conrad Earp, who's putting all of this together. Um, I don't like, you know... Um, know him as uh, the Incredible Hulk in the MCU, well, before uh, Mark Ruffalo as well. But so many other roles that we have got him in that I can't really catalogue them here. Um, He is playing the playwright and he's 
struggling with the text that he's trying to produce. And I kind of like that because this is a, a real reflection of how a playwright works, at least according to what I've read. And I feel like he, he nails the, the role quite well here. Adrian Brody is playing a director in this as well. And he sort of lacks direction in many ways too, but he's he's living on the set. <laughs> so, uh, again, a reflection of real life there. Rupert Friend plays Montana, a singing cowboy. Um, there's a singing cowboy band rocked up in Asteroid City as well. And in a really nice and subtle touch of the Foley sound design in this, his spurs jingle on his cowboy boots, but when you look at it in the camera, he's not wearing any spurs. <laughs> Every time he walks, you hear those spurs, and they're not there at all. Um, Rupert Friend, we saw way back in 2004 in The Libertine, um, also in uh, Pride and Prejudice, so he was Mr. Wickham in uh, 2005. Um, been in that Homeland series. Oh, and he's Stalin in The Death of Stalin in 2017 in that strange film. But, of course, he's been uh, in The French Dispatch and also he was the Grand Inquisitor in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Playing June, a teacher who gets interested in the character of Montana, uh, is Maya Hawke, who, of course, is one of the... Uh, is one of the children of uh, Ethan Hawke and uh, Uma Thurman. And we've seen her before in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, amongst other productions. Now, I keep getting echoes of other science fiction shows in this, and Steve Carell is there, you know, Space Corps, as the motel manager, and his great line is, of course I understand everything, and I pretty much can apply that to this Wes Anderson film except I'd be lying. <laughs> so um, He's not playing it like a Basil Fawlty guy, but he's like a typical uh, uh, Grand Budapest hotel sort of uh, hotel manager here, managing a motel. He's, he knows what he's doing, he knows what everybody else is doing, and he really wants to get out of the way what choice of fruit juice they want for breakfast. <laughs> so, uh, William Defoe is a, uh, an acting teacher in this, interacting with the, uh, the playwright. And, you know, whenever you see him, I was last seen him in uh, Spider-Man movie and um, play, reprising his Green Goblin character and taking it to even further flights of fantastic fantasy. And here he serves... A role that, that could be a thankless one, but he brings that home too. And this is the thing. Everybody is acting their hearts out in this, all using Anderson and Roman Coppola's um, stylized dialogue, which is as symmetrical in places as the actual visuals, but somehow still manages to evoke high emotion. So I think that's no mean feat. Margot Robbie plays the... Uh, deceased wife of one of the characters, uh, also the actress playing the wife in the theatrical production. Um, great to see her once again. And it feels like stunt casting, yes and no, because they usually sort of nail the roles that they're doing. Um, and, you know, sometimes they pick people who are, you'd say, were destined to play that particular role. But just as a little aside, what's the big rumour at the moment in the MCU that... Um, Taylor Swift might end up playing the singer, Dazzler. 
I just throw that in as a, uh, a non sequitur there just because I was talking about stunt, ca- stunt casting. But again, that would not be stunt casting since Dazzler is a singer in the MCU. And, you know, well, Taylor Swift is overqualified for that. Okay, other alumni in here. Jake Ryan pops up, uh, another Anderson staple actor, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, and he was in a horror movie which I saw all the way back in 2011 called The Innkeepers. Um, make of that what you will. The fact that this is once again set in a, a motel where strange things are happening. But he was in Isle of Dogs and Inside Llewellyn Davis and all sorts of things. But uh, he's playing... Um, uh, the well, what's uh, one of the main protagonists in the show? Uh, Woodrow Steenbeck, who's a let's 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 give him some air quotes as a, a brainiac, and um, he's an important character in this, who everything else hinges around. We've got uh, Jeff Goldblum. I'm not going to tell you what role Jeff has in this. You can find out for yourself. And then they start getting odd with the cameos like Bob Balaban, who was in Close Encounters in the Third Kind way back in the 1970s, and that's a a UFO movie. And uh, Sir George, uh, who did all those songs in The Life Aquatic, playing a cowboy. Uh, There's a special guest star who's a certain megastar of animated cartoon fame, but he rendered in CGI. At least that's my take on it. And Bill Murray was originally going to play the the, uh, Steve Carell role, but he had to drop out due to having COVID-19. But um, they did put him into the film in uh, a promotional short as well. (laughs) Or Roswell, as the case may be, because that's what this film reminds me of a little bit. So Asteroid City is what we're talking about here. And let's have a, a, another uh, track here. And I think we'll play uh, C. George's one from The Life Aquatic. We'll do a bit of a bowie here. And this is Starman. And this is from the Life Aquatic soundtrack. So it's one of our Bowie of the Week songs. Extra Charlie, take three. <laughs> Quebrar o gelo, quero acordar o sonho agora mesmo. 
George there with a track from The Life Aquatic, his cover of David Bowie's Starman. Entirely appropriate to Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, which is on at the cinema at the moment where I saw it. Not, not streaming, not on DVD, no other way, but actually at the cinema. So it's coming to streaming very, very quickly. Um, you know, they were working on a 45-day sort of... Um, not a, not really a uh, an embargo, but you know they were playing it in cinemas and then put them on streaming. And I mean they buy uh, different studios, but that's been shortcut a lot recently. Sometimes you've actually had simultaneous releases. Uh, what was it during the pandemic? Um, uh, Black Widow had that uh, that look going, uh, but now you know still fast pedalling into that. And you know I can see the marketing logic behind that. If you are a fan of Wes Anderson's films, you will naturally go and see it in the cinema if you can. If not, if you're just going, oh, I do like them, but I don't really want to go to the cinema, you just go, ah, but I could stand watching it on screen, on streaming. And by stand watching it, I mean being able to get to it. And that's just as close as your television set. So... Yeah, I can understand the marketing on that. Oh, so many strange things happening in the world. It's all shaking shaking up and, you know, change is a good thing in the zero-G language. We are futurist-driven here. Now, still looking at Asteroid City there. How does this film play out? Okay, so it is a science fiction comedy film with Anderson's dry sense of humour that will get you chuckling. Perhaps not giving a belly laugh, but definitely chuckling at certain points. It has all of the usual Anderson tropes. There are strong, driven protagonists, often with traumas in their past, and broken families. There are themes about childhood. There is, of course, the symmetrical framing. Um, Actually, just backpedalling there on my 80s bicycle, um, getting my walkie-talkie out. The childhood themes are quite important in this one because there are a bunch of strange children in this. Not Stranger Things style children, but certainly some of them are exceptionally smart and they have their own shtick going 
throughout the movie because, of course, they are there as the Brains Trust who have won the science fair that the military is sponsoring. And so it's important that they be there for the events that take place in the story. As well, of course, they have to uh, throw off the yoke of the industrial military complex at some stage during the film, as you know they will. Anyway, back to the symmetrical framing. It's both plaintily and it grounds us amongst the weirdness. (laughs) And I also find that it focuses the audience's attention. Uh, You're not supposed to look into the camera when you're acting, but it makes you feel like you, the audience, are the cameras. And, of course, there's the fact that it makes it all feel very theatrical because, of course, it is stage, uh, quite literally in the case here. And, of course, it's... uh, underlined by the carefully stylized and delivered dialogue. And I was waxing lyrical before about that dialogue, how it is actually weirdly emotionally engaging too and can deliver some rather surprising highs and lows. And speaking of uh, uh, Chiaroscuro, light and shade, just to throw a random thought in here that, I, that popped into my head, um, the light and shade in this film is enormously well-crafted, um, uh, there's a, an overhead trellis in the uh, in the motel car park that's got um, you know one of those lattices and it's supposed to have something growing on it. It's got some shade cloth or something, uh, and the light that comes through that that harsh desert light um, interacts with the checks on the 1950s style clothing uh, in a, in a quite mystical way. It's again, it's this is something that you have to see when you go to see Asteroid City. Now, it's all, uh, of course, that, that coolly judged colour palette that Anderson likes to deploy. Uh, in this case, it's oranges and browns and that fearsome, unrelenting blue sky. Uh, the terracottas of the desert contrasted with the ironically alien colours of the 1950s sort of space-age USA. And then there's the monochrome black and white of the framing story. So I should tell you that the, the meta play that this is supposedly part of, the, the, the events are depicted in widescreen and stylized colour. But when you see the television production being done, it's in um, black and white old Academy ratio. So everything else is labelled, of course, as usual in an Anderson film. And we've already been through the ensemble cast, which includes some of Anderson's old mates, So if you're after a Wes Anderson film, this one is for you. Is it one of his best ones? People always ask that. I don't know. Is is he striving to be better with each film? I don't know. Or is he just trying to be symmetrical with them, them? which he has achieved here for all of the reasons which I've outlined before. Look, I give it a a definite, um, yeah, rating. I'd have to give it a, yeah, yeah, rating, actually, to be symmetrical. just the fact that it is a science fiction story um, and the only other one of those, well, maybe, uh, well, no, look, we'll go with the, um, uh, the Life Aquatic as a definite science fiction one. Uh, although Isle of Dogs, uh, you know, of course I understand it. <laughs> as Steve Carell says in the show, more than once. Now, look, there's the Alessandra Despla soundtrack for this and then there's the country and western music songs which are dropped into it sometimes really well the needle drops are spot on 
And because we do have a singing cowboy band in <laughs> the Asteroid City Motel at, at the time, I'm not really sure if they were invited or not. Maybe they just turned up like everybody else. Um, but the idea of there being individual songs that are well-known ones, plus some made-up ones, too, specially composed for this. Now, I can't play you the specially composed ones because I, I made a call on this that they are pretty much musical spoilers for the plot, and I didn't want to go there in case you haven't seen the film yet. So I sort of leave those fallow for your imagination, but they are really good, too. And we'll go with a, a classic Western song here, not a long one, uh, just to give you a taste, really. And this is by the great Burl Ives, and this is his Troubadour recordings from 1941 to 1950, and uh, Cowboy's Lament, which you may also know as uh, Streets of Laredo, Burl Ives here, as played in Asteroid City. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen Wrapped in white linen as cold as the clay I see by your outfit that you are a cowboy These words he did say as I boldly walked by Come sit down beside me and hear my sad story I'm shot in the breast and I know I must die It was once in the saddle I used to go dashing Once in the saddle I used to go gay First down to Rosie's and then to the card house Got shot in the breast and I'm dying today Get sixteen gamblers to carry my coffin Get six jolly cowboys to sing me a song Take me to the graveyard and lay the sod o'er me For I'm a young cowboy and know I've done wrong Get six jolly cowboys to carry my coffin Get six pretty maidens to sing me a song Take me to the valley and lay the sod o'er me For I'm a young cowboy and know I've done wrong Oh, beat the drum slowly and play the fife lowly Play the dead marches, they carry me along Put bunches of roses all over my coffin Roses to deaden the clods as they fall As I walked out in the streets of Laredo As I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white linen Wrapped in white linen as cold as the clay now, Burl Ives cheering you up <laughs> uh, with a cowboy song there, which I always know as Streets of Laredo, but it's played in Wes Anderson's Asteroid City and is actually called Cowboy's Lament. 
God, I haven't thought of the Laredo Western Television series for quite some time. That's taking me back a bit there. Uh, it's kind of appropriate since Asteroid City is set in a retro 1950s. I would like to hear Scooby-Doo say, retro 1950s. Actually, it doesn't make any difference at all. Never mind. All right, so uh, what else have I been watching uh, apart from uh, marvelling at Star Trek Strange New Worlds and being slightly disappointed by Marvel's Secret Invasion, but it still had its good points. Um, And speaking of Nick Fury and that one eye that he got from being scratched by Carol Danvers' weird cat, (laughs) any time lags in button pressing on today's console are brought to you by my own personal flurkin who woke me up at three o'clock in the morning so giving me a grand total of about two and a half hours sleep i think i'm doing all right here for a robot whose batteries are about as flat as they could possibly be (laughs) Enough self-praise. Moving along with Zero G. I have been watching uh, an adaptation of a video game uh, on stand. It's called Twisted Metal. And a quite popular first-person car driving game. Um, Not actually all that far different from Road Wars, if you remember that game, uh, which was more of a a paper play game. But this one, um, obviously a video game, and there is a lot of obligatory car chase armed to the Duco sort of <laughs> adventure. And the interesting thing about it for me, well, it's set in a post-apocalyptic USA. Well, you know, it's not all that unusual now, is it? But the fact that it does star two people who we know very well on Zero-G from various things. Uh, it's got um, uh, Anthony Mackie uh, playing the driver of a courier vehicle, the car. Um, he's a milkman, does the run between the armed compounds that are all that are left of the city. And also Stephanie Beatrice, 99, <laughs> who is playing a character called Quiet, who doesn't always match that particular name. That's probably the most interesting depiction of a killer clown in this that I've ever seen, a guy called Sweet Tooth. Um, an ongoing character in the story who actually has <laughs> surprising depths along with the psychopathic, insane, monstrously brutal serial killer that he is as well. I don't know. I didn't write this thing. <laughs> but, yeah, it's one of those ones. I mean, you know, we just had The Last of Us Season 1 roll through and we were quite impressed by that naturally. But here we are with this different one now. I'll give you a bit of a track here, and that's on stand too, by the way. I might run into that in a bit more length. There's 10 episodes at the moment for Twisted Metal. All right, now I think I'll play, because I'm going to have a look at what uh, last Melbourne International Film Festival film, uh, although they may continue to echo on past the closure of the Flesh and Blood Festival in the urban cinemas. Uh, there is still a regional program and online streaming as well as I imagine some of these films will further be released throughout the next year and possibly some on DVD as well. And, you know, this is these things. A film festival never actually stops. And neither does the Loquasto International Film Festival, which is a uh, (laughs) track from... a uh, soundtrack from uh, The Life Aquatic. 
another Wes Anderson film. If you recall, there is a little bit of a film festival there that takes place. And this one, I'm not sure. Ah, yes, it's by Mark Mothersbaugh. And again, from the Life Aquatic. The Loquasto International Film Festival from the Life Aquatic. suitably entranced or entranced into the Loquasto International Film Festival. Mark Mothersbaugh there at Life Aquatic Original Motion Picture Soundtrack album. Now, we're looking at a film from the Melbourne International Film Festival that uh, caught up with on the last weekend of the festival. And I just love this one to pieces, even though it's another one. Actually, we're in the whimsical films today. I can see that. You, could, you would not get any change from seeing Asteroid City at a film festival and neither would you feel shortchanged by seeing the Latin American film Eureka there, even though it is actually set in part in uh, North America in the uh, USA, ostensibly, as far as I can figure out. It's by slow film auteur Lisandro Alonso, and, well, it's a meditation on colonialism, really, set across several different eras from the 19th century through to uh, contemporary times and then back to 1970. So Alonso is an Argentinian film director and screenwriter. He's had six different feature-length films, uh, one short film, two, I think. Um, you may know his other films, uh, Dos en la Vereda from 1995, Los Muertos in 2004, Freedom, um, Liverpool uh, and Jauja. And this actually is kind of a, a reflection upon some of those other films because it has Mortensen and uh, Vibjork Ager appearing in it too, who are a father and, and daughter team up in this. So... That appear, they appear in the first of the vignettes. Uh, and I, I should say that these vignettes, there are three of them. One takes place in the American West. One takes place in a uh, Lakota Sioux reservation in the 
contemporary in contemporary times now, uh, and the final one takes place, I think, in Brazil in the 1970s. And each of these are all done in different aspect ratios and done in a different way. So the uh, the Western one, the American Western one, is in classic black and white at the start. Um, so these are very complex pieces, but also deceptively simple in the way they're staged. You know, the Western one, the uh, the policewoman tra- travelling around a reservation, going about her rounds, uh, and the Brazil one is uh, about um, a small village in the forest uh, where somebody flees from a crime and ends up in a mining camp uh, working there. And there are linking moments in this that are as transitory and transformative as anything you'd see in a Kubrick film, particularly 2001, A Space Odyssey. Does it all make sense? Well, I, of course, do not understand everything that's going on in this, but I don't have to. Do you know, if you see enough film festival films, you get into this mode where you're quite happy to see something that's fairly experimental and which doesn't necessarily have a straightforward narrative because you're actually looking for that. It doesn't mean that you're tired of uh, traditional narrative stories where there's a beginning, a middle and an end and it all falls out ahead of you and if you uh, you see a, a plot device in one earlier scene, you know it's going to show up in another. It doesn't have to be that way all the time. Sometimes you're just immersed in the pure art of cinema and that's what I feel that Eureka is about. In fact, I actually can't say that there's a moment in the film where you go, Eureka, this all falls into place. But... Perhaps it does in the linking scenes. I did feel like if you just isolate those and look at them separately, there is something going on there that's more than more than meets the eye, which would not be surprising. <laughs> um, it's nice to see Vigo playing a, a cowboy in this once again. He's sort of a uh, an unforgiven-like figure, actually, in terms of this story. Uh, he's going into this isolated desert town, and before you can say Deadwood, he's pouring himself a a drink out of a bottle in a rowdy saloon while there are drinks pour, drunks pouring themselves into bottles in the same place. And there's a lone feather on his solitary ta- table, like an eagle feather or something like that. Actually, no, it is not an eagle feather. I've just realised what it is. There is a, a bird feather on the table. Um, and there's um, he's playing a character called Murphy. And, you know, you're almost in El Topo territory here and a little bit uh, Jaramushi and sort of dead man-ish kind of stuff. Um, he is there with a mission, like I said, unforgiving kind of thing. And, you know, you know that there are going to be bodies and gunfire. And, and I should warn you that there are sordid scenes of naked wanton depravity, unregulated imbibing of strong liquor and bloody-handed frontier violence exacted in this film Eureka. And Gary Owen, that, um, uh, that old uh, signature tune of um, General Custer is playing throughout this particular episode. There are two other vignettes in this. There's a, um, a Lakota Sioux uh, Native American policewoman um, doing her rounds in a very cold-looking winter, um, trying to wrangle as well her young daughter who's um, got basketball practice. Um, you know, you're not that f- very far from Fargo territory in that vignette. And maybe some uh, David Lynch kind of metaphors turning up too. That's what I, I felt when I was watching that particular sequence. Uh, it's actually kind of very very dreary and plodding and appropriately so. Um, Alonso is not a director who glosses over the mundanity of 
human life. Um, you know, sometimes directors they just they just edit the hell out of everything, and you snap from one thing to another. And I'm not saying that this is like the Turin horse, if you know that particular exercise in plotting, but this has a lot in it that I thought, yeah, you know what? You deserve to have that shot held for you. I want to see what's going on there. I want to let it play out. And Alonso is certainly a person to do that. The uh, Brazilian rainforest one, or actually it might be a little bit further from the rainforest, um, is another beautifully staged piece. And Alonso is doing stuff in that that I think he held one of the longest dissolves I've ever seen between scenes in this one where where he holds it for so long that the other part of the shot, the second part of the shot, is superimposed over the first for a very long time. And you think, yeah, I actually feel like this has given me a sense of motion by it not moving. It was an amazing piece. And he does a lot of that kind of play with the art of cinematography in Eureka. So, yeah, I enjoyed this. I don't know if you will. Um, but that's not really the point. <laughs> okay, now that reminds me that I just had a, a program prompt there to remind me of something. And uh, yes, it was a Star Trek uh, bosun's call. That next week is Radiothon. And we will be taking a lesson from the educational theme. We'll be giving away notional honourable doctorates and degrees to fictional institutions of learning. Um, such as the Time Lord Academy, uh, Starfleet Academy, Sunnydale High, uh, the Xavier School for Gifted Students, you know, that kind of thing. A role will be taken, class, so have your homework ready and your permission slips signed for next week in the Radiothon Zero G and Triple R indeed as we go into subscription mode. All right, well, that's about it for Zero G for today. And we will go out, I believe, with a... Well, I've got so many things that I could choose to play today, but I think we'll go with the Native American theme that we established just then by talking about Alonso's film Eureka. And this is by Georgia Wetland Larson, or Whirling Wind Woman. It's a Lakota, Nakota Sioux song called Ink Pataya. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.